Welcome to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of me, Rick Lee James. I'm a recording artist, a singer, songwriter, author, worship leader, an ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene, and most recently, a hospital chaplain. The Voices in My Head podcast is where I discuss things that are on my mind, the voices in my head. Music, movies, books, pop culture, theology, and more are all on the table as I discuss them here with friends and colleagues and sometimes just by myself, processing what I'm learning in the moment. Make sure to let me know what you think of today's episode by leaving me a review on iTunes, tweeting to me at Rick Lee James on Twitter, and by joining my mailing list at rickleejames.com where you can receive an email every time a new episode is released. By the way, in case you are interested in a daily dose of kindness and encouragement beyond this podcast, I also run the Twitter account at Mr. Rogers Save, where I post daily quotes from Fred Rogers, one of the loudest voices in my head, which is ironic because he was such a quiet person. Also, if you do want to be notified about all of my latest releases, not just this podcast, sign up for email notifications on my Substack page found at rickleejames.substack.com. Well, I guess that's it for the intro, so let's get to the latest episode of Voices in My Head, the Rick Lee James Podcast. Welcome back to Voices in My Head. As always, I am your host, Rick Lee James, and I'm so grateful to all of you who are listening. Thank you for being here for another conversation this week. My guest this week on Voices in My Head is John Ward. John is the Chief National Correspondent at Yahoo News. Ward's life is divided in half, two decades inside the evangelical Christian bubble and two decades outside of it. In his new book, Testimony, Ward tells the engaging story of his upbringing in and eventual break from an influential evangelical church. He sheds light on the evangelical movement's troubling political and cultural dimensions, tracing the ways in which the Jesus People movement was seduced by materialism and other factors to become politically captive rather than prophetic. A respected journalist, Ward asks uncomfortable but necessary questions, calling those inside and outside conservative Christian circles to embrace truth, complexity, and nuance. He recounts his growing alarm and grief over the last several years as evangelical conservatives attacked truth, rejected personal character, and embraced authoritarianism and conspiracism. He shares his search for faith that embodies the values he was taught as a child. His experience and reflections will resonate with many readers, including myself, who grew up in the evangelical movement, as well as all those who have an interest in the health of the church and its impact on American life and politics. John Ward, welcome to Voices in My Head. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, as as we said in the introduction already, uh, your book has resonated with so many people, and I include myself in that number of people. As we hear your story, I think many of us hear our own stories and our own backgrounds and things that we've been grappling with over the last several years. I, I appreciated the honesty, um, just the transparency that you share, um, personal stories and things that you didn't necessarily have to share with us, but it, it we are so much more enriched because of it. So I appreciate you sharing. I appreciate even, I think, your family's willingness. You know, I'm sure you probably asked their uh, permission as you share about some of the conversations you had and difficult moments. Um, but I'm grateful that you make that relationship a, a big part of the conversation. So thank you for being here today to talk about your wonderful book, Testimony. Thank you, Rick. I think I think one of the reasons I wanted to share, you know, transparently is because I, I do think there was some motivation to help others. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the more a reader or a listener um can see the reality of the situation in another person's story um without gloss without spin Mm. uh without the best foot forward i think the more that that helps you know another person identify because we all have challenges we all have struggles and um and our stories are not uh 
are not usually tied up with a bow. Yeah. Well, so, that's yeah. yeah, so true. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> well, I, I think I want to start with actually a passage that you wrote in your book. Um, you say in your book, I existed during my upbringing in a conservative church. I never felt entirely comfortable there. And I, it's interesting how you say you existed, but you didn't feel entirely comfortable. And and in the book, you talk about uncomfortable but necessary questions that you began to raise that made you feel a bit like an outsider, or to use the, the phrase that you use, which comes from Beowulf, a, a border stalker. And I really appreciated sort of that metaphor and that language. Um, maybe talk a little bit about um, the meaning behind that that phrase of, of being a border stalker and maybe some of those questions that you began to grapple with that you you really didn't feel free to either ask in the church or you weren't finding good answers. That that term border stalker grabbed me by the lapel. Mm. And I, I think it it functions that way for a lot of people. It's an odd term. It's an interesting mix of words. Um, the old English version from Beowulf um, is even stranger, Mirkstapa. Um, yeah, there's something about like just that term that I think intrigues people. It, it intrigues me. And, you know, so I oftentimes that's my instinct is if it intrigues me, it's going to intrigue somebody else. Andrew Yang, you know, who ran for president and ran for mayor of New York City, um, he read the book recently and um sent me a copy of his book and and he you know he signed it from a fellow border stalker which i thought was kind of <laughs> cool yeah uh, but the term um it just gets at i think a feeling that anybody will have if they're in an in group that is generally closed off um keeps to itself and tries to hold to a pretty precise set of doctrines or beliefs. And that does not have to be Christian. It does not have to even be religious. It could be political. It could be social. It could be really anything, any mm -hmm. kind of group that kind of keeps to itself and tries to enforce a pretty strict sense of orthodoxy or dogma or, you know, adherence to a set of teachings or, or whatever. Mm. So I think anybody who questions that is going to end up being um, alienated from that group. Mm. And I, I don't really know why some of us tend to push more against that sort of thing than others. I think it's generally probably just comes down to personality types. Um, and I still, I think, am working to get less and less judgmental of those who are not like me because i think the natural instinct is to think well everybody should be a border stalker everybody should question you know rigid orthodoxies i'm not sure that's true hmm. you know i think in any group there's a need for for people who do walk the border and push against the boundaries there's also a need probably for people who patrol the boundaries and the borders um and there's all kinds of roles inside the group. Mm. What we're kind of really talking about is an ecosystem because we do all live within ecosystems, mm -hmm. um, community groups, or, or just our communities, our neighborhoods, you know, our religious communities, our school communities, work, all of these, you know, these are all ecosystems. And I do think though that a lot of religious communities often fail to appreciate and prioritize the role of the border stalker mm -hmm. um, because like again like many other in groups um it's easier in the short term to move forward without troublesome questions yeah questions slow us down they call they they make it harder to make decisions because then you have to stop and think about the question and answer the question and deliberate. Um, and, you know, I'm not advocating for paralysis, mm. but I do think over the long term, um, valuing this role within religious communities is one of the most wise, pragmatic, strategic health and life-giving things 
that a religious community can do for itself. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I thank you so much for, for sharing about that more. And I think a lot of us probably feel that way from time to time. And I remember a church history professor that I had one time reminding us that sometimes it feels frustrating, but change in the church is very slow. He said, but at the same time, it needs to be very slow because you don't want to be tossed about and by every wind of doctrine that comes along. But at the same time, it's good for us to be able to be in that place where we can have difficult questions and, and conversations that need to be had that help us to, to make sure that we're still on the right path. And I, I feel like, um, the way that you talk about in your, your book, as you grew, and I, I think, you know, James Fowler talked about different stages of faith that people have as we go through. And I feel like you began to grow into a new stage of faith and you started asking questions. And I, I if you don't mind, I just want to read a, another short excerpt from your book where you say, but the main reason my parents uh, should have been concerned about me in high school was because my, re- uh, sorry, my religious upbringing had given me lots of training on how to feel and what to believe, but very little on how to think. Jesus instructed his followers to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, And we were quite good at the heart and soul part, but the mind had somehow been neglected. And I, I find that a, kind of a very fascinating place for maybe us to, to just discuss a little bit about sometimes the reality of, of what it feels like. We're, we're often taught what to believe, and, and not what to think. And again, the same professor I mentioned a moment ago had a poster hanging on his door in his office that said, Jesus came to take away your sins, not your brains. And uh, I always love that phrase as we come to it. But um, I, I'd i love to, to know just, uh, and I think our listeners would love to hear if they haven't read the book already, just a little bit of sort of your, your background. And I know that part that I just read comes in when your parents were very concerned about as you were growing up as a teenager and all the things that parents, especially conservative Christian parents worry about like drugs and sex and rock and roll and all those things. But I love how you express that what you really, uh, uh, that they should have been concerned about was was your ability to think. So I wonder if you could just kind of take us a little bit on your background. Tell us about uh, maybe that church that you were raised in, in in the Maryland suburbs outside of Washington, D.C., and uh, your dad working as a minister, just some of the situation there, because I think it helps us to have a, a little more depth into your story and your insights. Sure. Um I will just say, you know, the whole uh, issue of whether change should be slow or fast, going back to our previous point oh, sure. inside the church, um, I do think sometimes people can say, you know, hey, change has always got to be slow. And I instinctively agree with that mm. to a certain degree. I, I, I do think there's something wise and conservative mm-hmm. in having a view of change that it should be that you shouldn't make reforms, especially big ones, in ways that are over hasty. Mm. But as in almost everything, there is a matter of balance here because if there is clear or egregious abuse or you know unju- mm. injustice happening, the, I, I'm just sensitive to the fact that the line that change should be slow can be used um as a club to oh, to beat yeah. down those who want to bring or advocate for for justice yes 100 uh, percent. yeah so my, my um yeah my upbringing um was was situated in this in the 70s and when we talk about wanting to teach children the right things to believe and the right things to do or more often the right things not to do. I do think so much of that is situated um, or shaped by a unique set of factors um, in the religious space. I think a, a big a big input was this dispensationalist theology, actually. Um, just this view of, um, you know, the end times, uh being imminent and uh the job of the christian to be um to to kind of keep oneself pure from the world and to hold on till christ's return mm. that was very very popular then 
Um, the late great planet Earth came out, I think, in 72 or 73, um, Hal Lindsey's book. And that was very popular. There were some films that came out around that time. So this was very much in the air. And I think it often gets overlooked um, by by certain people who were not necessarily overly focused on this, because I think a lot of times they they may not be fully appreciative of how I do think that that shaped people, the, the evangelical church or, or large, large sections of it, even if they weren't, you know, obsessives about, you know, the rapture. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my parents were both uh, mainline Christians. My dad was Catholic. My mom's um, Episcopalian. And then they, they, they left that behind probably in high school. And then we're, we're looking for something more and, and, and looking for a meaningful faith in the early seventies. And that's when the Jesus movement was in full effect. Uh, this revival that started in California and spread across the country. And um, a lot of their friends became uh, born again, Christians at the same time as them. So there was definitely a feeling that something was happening that was organic and real and authentic and exciting. Um, and they all started going to a Bible study outside or just inside the DC uh, uh, city line um, at a, I think a, I think a Baptist church in, in mm-hmm. Northwest DC um, started in somebody's basement and the, the main speakers were, were uh, talented um, and dynamic. And so they started attracting a lot of people who were coming to this and uh, they had to move into a bigger space. And they did this for several years. It was called take and give uh, went by the acronym tag. And then at a certain point, after a few years, they started their own church. And, Hmm. you know, I mentioned the dispensationalist theology, the rapture mindset. um, And, and I think that was more in the background, I think in the fourth, and I think it was more formative, but in the Mm -hmm. fourth, was um, just, you know, a very charismatic, quasi-Pentecostal uh, way of faith. Um, at times, there was there were hints of almost like socialism in terms of the philosophy of materialism, which mm-hmm. was, let's pool our resources, let's live as the church in the book of Acts. Yeah. Live. They shared their, their, shared their possessions and very egalitarian, although not probably so much when it came to gender roles, but egalitarian, at least in um, a sense of everybody being equal and belonging, um, but still vestiges of sort of those gender, uh, you know, traditional roles. Um, So, you know, the church services were uh, rock band and everybody dressed casual. um, And uh, this was the beginnings in in some ways of, uh, of mega churches, you know, mm. those, those didn't really exist at the time. And so a lot of these mega churches came out of the energy that came from these more organic house churches and startups. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate you sharing uh, some of your background there. And, you know, one thing that, that you write about in your book, and, and I, I think you, you say this in a really powerful way and one way that it really speaks to me right now in my work as a hospital chaplain, um, a lot of what I do is I listen to people and I hear their stories. And it's amazing sometimes uh, the inner resources that God has given people to to find ways of, of being healed uh, from resources within them when someone listens to them. And then when they are able to sometimes find this release of things they've been holding on to for so long, it's fascinating. Yeah. That often comes from from being able to look into another person's life, to, to kind of make that bow to a person where you're willing to hear their story, to see them. And you talk about in the book, um, you, you say that in the evangelical subculture where you were raised, you were in a place of not looking at the world that much. And I, I, I understand what you mean by that because uh, we're almost, in many ways, uh, many of us were taught to, to fear those outside of our sort of subculture. And you talk about a way that even though you, you lived in a certain part of the country, you might as well have been in Appalachia or somewhere because you were so kind of closed off. And yet the, the way that you talk about that place of, of being taught not to look at or look into, you know, <laughs> the world in such a way. I'd love for you to talk more about that a little bit, if you don't mind, of the way that Christian subcultures can sometimes be places 
that are not looking at the world that much, and thus they are not advocating for the common good uh, because they they don't tend to look outside themselves. Would, would you mind just talking a little bit about that? Because you write so well about it in the book. To me, this is the difference between being a stakeholder versus a, a antagonist mm-hmm. uh, or an or or an opponent. And I think we were very much. I was very much. I think a lot of people uh, have been raised this way. Where you're you're taught to thought you're taught to think of non-Christians or um, the secular world as the opponents, mm. um, and there is some grounding in in biblical you know scripture and theology for this notion of you know um, uh, the the world as a force um, and uh, you know even you know the the, the forces of evil. Um, you know, there is language like that in the Bible. So I understand where it comes from. Um, but, you know, I've written in in my journalism about how when you overemphasize uh, passages of Scripture about uh, spiritual warfare or over-apply these kinds of ideas onto political um, disagreement, um, it's very easy to, even if, you know, there are a lot of people who even today will say, you know, they talk mostly about angels and demons in the spiritual realm. And then they kind of qualify it and they say, we're not talking about real world violence. And we're not saying that these people are demons, but that that's not really an effective way to prevent dehumanization mm-hmm. and, and demonization. I think I said those distinctly, right? Dehumanization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And um, because if all of your rhetoric day after day is talking about people who think differently from you, you know, in this schema of good versus evil and light versus dark and angels versus demons, mm-hmm. you can qualify it all you want, but that's building the mental categories in your head about how you think about those people. And I think that's a large part, along with the dispensationalism, uh, which teaches us to th- sort of just regard the created world as um, as kindling for a fire mm-hmm. that will come when 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 Christ returns. Mm-hmm. All of that kind of works together to to build an oppositional uh, mindset about those who think differently, those who share have different values, those who have different beliefs, um, uh, rather than a stakeholder mindset which is sure we disagree we have different beliefs but we share this neighborhood we share this country we share this world and um you know our call as ambassadors of christ the king is to work uh to love our neighbor and to work for the good of all and i think you know if that had been more of a banner i think it would have it would have changed some things um and uh yeah i just uh i i was speaking to um a new york times reporter recently the piece hasn't run yet and i felt like throughout the conversation i felt like i wasn't saying the right thing and um you know i was just not i i didn't feel great about it but at the very end i felt like i said something that i hadn't said before which really captured i think something kind of deep in in my soul which is mm-hmm. that um she asked me something about regrets hmm. and i and i don't like to talk about regrets i don't like to think about life in that way um but i did come to a place where i said you know i do feel sad that it has taken me so long to love the world hmm. and by the world i don't mean the structure in scripture that is talked about as um systems that produce unjust outcomes right um i just mean the created world i mean the trees outside my window Uh, yeah and uh, my neighbor across the street um and the music on the radio you know just Mm -hmm. the the everyday blessings of life um the ups and downs the ins and outs um you know it's taken me a long time to really love those things and to Mm. love this world to love this day and this moment Um, because a lot of faith taught a certain way does teach us 
to think more about the day that's coming yeah. uh, than the day that we're living. And even in life before death, that can be an unhealthy way of thinking. Yeah. Uh, if you're always thinking about, if I just get to this point, um, then it'll all be okay. Mm. And, and maybe there might be, you know, elements of Eastern religion that feed into a more present minded focus, but there's just a lot to unpack there, you know, mm -hmm. when it comes to being embodied, loving, you know, the earth, the dirt, um, mm -hmm. the cycles of nature, all of these things are things that I'm, that are kind of, you know, new over the last decade mm. for me, which I found to be very life-giving. Um, yeah. But I, but I wish I had been raised um, in in more in line with that sort of way. Yeah. Well, and I, I think you're you're touching on something, and you've mentioned it a couple of times. The the dispensational theology that kind of pervaded so many churches in such a short amount of time. Because really, uh, I, I think if I'm right, something like maybe that theology is roughly 200 years old, if if that. Uh, which would not have been something the early church would have seen or even understood. They would look at it and go, what are you talking about? Because our, you know, we, we talk about in scripture of a God who is continually making all things new and redeeming and making new things. And we are heading towards a recreation of, you know, like a return to Eden almost. We, you, you, you almost start and end the Bible in the same place, you know, with this, this creation of a new Eden and a new heavens and a new earth. And, um, and, and dispensationalism, as you had talked about before, it, it looks at it very suspiciously. Everything's just going to be blown apart. And instead of looking at it as, no, God is taking um, what has become corrupt and God is redeeming and renewing and making beautiful and, you know, uh, taking the the. Uh, you know, turning, as Jesus says, you know, swords into plowshares and, and we're taking these things that were meant for destruction and harm and actually making something beautiful and powerful from it. So um, so that that whole theology, it really does make a difference in our focus and, and what we're heading for. And so if we learn, I think what you're talking about is essentially learning to love our neighbor, you know, <laughs> and to look outside and see the beauty of the things that God created. Uh, I was joking with somebody the other day. I'm 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 at the age now where I'm starting to notice birds. You know, <laughs> like when when you <laughs> when you're younger, you don't think so much. But you know, during the pandemic, we had um, a nest just above our garage, and we got to see some birds take their very first flight out of that nest. And and I remember was us like we're videoing it, and there was a new wonder to it. You know, that we had not experienced before. Yeah. Um, and and it almost maybe it takes a little time in, in your life to yeah. grow and and develop into that um but but I, I love hearing the way that you talk about these these new ways the way that you've learned to love the world just uh you know the the world that was created and the, and the beauty that god makes and i think that's beautiful but i also oh i'm sorry you were well the, the other thing i would say is that i do think that the way that we're taught to read the bible plays into this as well mm -hmm. uh, there's an element of um you know biblical supremacy or biblical uh literalism mm -hmm. that uh discounts the fact that you know you can be an you can be a a person who believes in the divine inspiration of the bible you can even be a probably a, an errantist and still believe that god has revealed himself through the created uh world as well mm -hmm. but i think sometimes biblical supremacy gets taken to such an extreme yeah. that people kind of place the Bible over the created revelation um, or the, 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 the book of, of created reality um, and, and begin to, I think the, the other elements we've already talked about play into it, you know, the mm -hmm. dispensationalism um, and, and the other factors, but I think the biblical uh, supremacy mindset can also play into that where we we look at the created world and if there are elements of sort of evangelical culture that have been extrapolated out of the text by somebody's interpretation mm -hmm. that are that are saying what you see with your own eyes is not actually happening i think that further leads to a devaluing yeah. of the created 
reality. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and thank you for the way that you write about. It. I I uh, I think there's a a professor that you had for a time, uh, Throckmorton, I believe. It's a it's a unique name <laughs> for sure. And he he says something, uh, not exactly how you phrased it there. And I wish I would have written the the quote down so I could say it better. But it was about this idea of you know not not ignoring the truths in front of you just because the Bible might say something different because. They're writing at different perspectives and different times. So um, I appreciate the way that you help us to uh, to, to see that. And, and I think you talk about in your book, too, um, I, I, if, if I remember, you talk about the way that journalism um, actually was a way that kind of kind of saved you from that kind of thinking because it, it helps you to to look at the world um in a way i maybe not an unbiased way because we all have un, we all have our biases but in a way that is that is true you know <laughs> and in a way that is uh helpful to just look at it in with nuance and not so much only always black and white but in the way that the world is complicated and it's a place that um i think as a journalist you would you would probably say these are my words not yours um, but you're looking at the world for what it is and not for what we want it to be necessarily. <laughs> and you're trying to tell a truthful story about that. And, and am I kind of accurate in, in how I'm assessing that? Yeah, hundred percent. And, um, you know, we were just talking when it comes to the way that the Bible interplays with the world as we experience it. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, if people take the Bible supremacy too far, they can often slip into the world as I want it to be rather than the way it is, but I th- I think that journalism did a few things for me. It it did teach me that life is much more complicated than I had been taught. Mm. In terms of you know everything is not so black and white. In ter- and, and, you know in, as we try to assess what's good and bad and and right and wrong, or or in between. There's a lot mm. more in between. I think is is probably the point there. Yeah. Uh, it also taught me that. Uh, the world and life are not as evil and scary as I had been taught, even though there is great evil um, and true horror in mm. this world. Um, you know, I think there were elements of that that had been overblown or over extrapolated. And there were also elements of it that were misplaced. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the evil was, was not, uh, was was in other places uh you know greed and and uh um you know the the abuse of the power of the powerless i think was not something that we were were taught about but you know the the complexity really gets to something else which is journalism taught me about complexity but it also embeds in the practitioner uh a habit of of starting with a statement when you approach a topic or um or an issue or a situation uh it embeds in you this habit of starting with a statement of i very well could be wrong here in mm-hmm. my assumptions i could be wrong and i think that statement i could be wrong has been one of the most powerful life-giving faith-building statements in my life mm-hmm. Um, and I do think a lot of it started with journalism. And here's an example of what I mean. I started my journalism career in late 2001, 2003, the U.S. invades Iraq. And early on in that invasion, I was a very young reporter and I was assigned to write about the deaths of U.S. you know, soldiers who were in combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. I attended a few funerals at Arlington Cemetery and at churches around the DC region. If you're assigned to write that story and part of the job of writing that story is to write about how to spell the name of that soldier. Let's say his name is Daryl. Mm-hmm. You assume his name is spelled a certain way. But I could be wrong about that. Mm. Well, I better damn well check. Yeah. Yeah. Because if I get that person's name wrong, that's an insult to their memory. Mm. And that family will be, I will be adding to their grief. Mm. And 
you know, that applies not just to the name, but to the manner of death and the mm -hmm. date of the death and on and on and on. The details are, are quite voluminous in any 800 word story about, you know, a soldier's death in combat or mm -hmm. in theater. And so at a very basic granular level, you're taught to second guess your assumptions. Hmm. And I think as a way of life, um, that's that's been a, a very healthy thing for me. And I've applied it broadly just as sort of a way of approaching knowledge in general. Hmm. Uh, and uh, we can talk more about it, but um, I don't think it's the norm. Hmm. For people, I think, especially now, even as knowledge, you know, information has accelerated and there's more and more bad information out there, I think people are still operating on the old assumptions of, well, I can just sort of pass on information or or uh, assume information into my frame framework um, without really doing some due diligence on this. Yeah, yeah. I, oh, I, I agree. And and thank you for giving us that good insight into um, what you, the importance of good journalism, too, you know, and, and the real world consequences of when it actually, you know, is gets wrong. Um, and 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 also the integrity that I think most journalists have. Uh, it, the journalism has, has gotten a bad rap over the last few years, for sure. But I think there are so many people with integrity that just as you're talking about, I mean, the things like even how to spell a name, those are so important. Um, which which makes it all the more difficult um, when when we're in the time that we're in, and as you write about in your book, where um, you know journalism begins to be under attack, the church begins to put its support behind a man like Donald Trump, which is you know he's he's probably a symptom of a deeper problem than he is just the problem himself, but still it's a it's a head scratcher at times. And the way that you write about it in the book um, is is very interesting because I have been. Uh, I don't know, probably spent in the better part of what, six years now asking all these questions of how do so many of the good and loving people that I know, that I worship with, that I was raised by, that I grew up with, how have they um, gotten behind someone so hypocritical, so corrupt, someone that tells nothing but lies constantly? I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure there's truth peppered in. There's enough truth to to make it sound true. Um, so I don't want to say nothing but lies, but it's 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 a if you fact check, it's a pretty constant, steady stream of lies, you know, <laughs> that's going on. Um, and then to be have the church so embedded with that, and I think it creates a great crisis of faith. For many of us who feel like we're the crazy ones and we're looking in and saying saying what's going on like how did the same church that you know instilled in me about um there was a problem with bill clinton back in the day because of, of his morality and uh you have a man that makes bill clinton look like a choir boy almost in some ways and yet well nope the church is fine with it now um so there there are these really complicated issues that come up and, and you talk about in the book about like your warnings about Trump scorn for the Constitution and the rule of law. They were just dismissed as mere liberal bias. You write about um, the 2016 uh, result. You say it caused you to reflect deeply on how your politics, how our politics had come to this point, as well as how in the world Christians had thrown in their lot with such a man. Um, I think that's a question many of us has have asked again and again. I like how your book and your reflections actually give us some insight into that about how maybe because of your own background and some of the churches and, and the people that you grew up around, there was actually a fair amount of, of hypocrisy and immoral things happening in churches too. And there was a sense in which some of these things found each other, you know, <laughs> in the midst of all of it. And as a person who loves the church, I'm not trying to badmouth churches or even politicians for that matter, but there is a, a way that you write about in the book that kind of tells us the the way that these two things kind of got married together. And I wonder if you could tell us, uh, and I know we're, we're going a little bit over in time, if you're okay with, with just yeah. a few more minutes. Right. I'd love if you could maybe tell listeners about this very interesting part of your book. Um, it was a couple of years before Trump put his name in for running for president. There was a prayer breakfast uh, that, well, no, I'm sorry. It was a birthday party, I believe, for Billy Graham that was happening at that time. And it's a very interesting story. And I think it's a, a very enlightening uh, look into maybe some of the ways that 
how we got where we are today. Would you mind just kind of setting up that story for us and telling us a bit more about it? Sure. I, I believe it was Billy Graham's 95th birthday party. 95th. I, okay. uh, I, I, refer, I refer all listeners to the text for the actual <laughs> Uh, for the actual birthday, I believe it was ninety-five, um, and uh, and I'm going off of memory on that. But um, this was uh, 2013, 2014. I came across it because I was writing about Lecrae, the the rapper, mm-hmm. um, and he was at that he was at that dinner, and they they featured him in a video there. But when I went back and looked at the dinner, I realized this was a couple of years later. I realized that uh, at the table where Billy Graham was um, Sarah Palin was sitting right next to him with her husband um, and right next to them, like literally in the picture where Graham is pictured uh, was Trump uh, and Melania. So this was a couple of years before he ever ran for president. Now he had been thinking about running for president for decades. I mean, I, I, I literally just filed a story today about Roger Stone and how he is, really kind of doing an, an updated version of what we're talking about here right now, where he is going into all these web streams um, of kind of really far out uh, Pentecostal charismatic Christians. Uh, he's, he's good friends with a guy named Robin D Bullock hmm. who, who goes on this thing called Elijah streams all the time. Robin Bullock has 200,000 uh, subscribers to his YouTube channel and he's somebody who um, claims that he's been to heaven several times, has seen God, has watched God create the earth, um, you know, said that the the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago um, unleashed uh, a day of vengeance and, you know, reads from Isaiah 63 about, you know, the blood of, uh, of people staining God's clothing. Wow. Um, really really far out there people these are people who have completely disattached from like any responsible um epistemology in terms of like how do we know what's true how do we establish reliable information but they're just out there like prophesying whatever they want and stone is out there becoming friends with them gaining influence with them and you know with with clearly with the intent of using them politically and mobilizing them yeah that's what trump was doing back a decade ago or so and stone mm-hmm. the point of, re- of i mentioned stone is because stone has been trying to get trump to run for president since the 1980s wow um and so all of this was in the background and, and i think stone ha- having been a dirty tricks person knows a mark when he sees one yeah and, and so does trump and and trump i think sensed that evangelicals were two things mm. they were suspicious of mainstream institutions and the mainstream media mm-hmm. um and i think he sensed that he could manipulate them fairly easily and i think that's largely because there's a lack of engagement a lack of stakeholder mentality mm-hmm. leading to a lack of discernment and i think that sense of being out of the loop when it comes to how things really work and makes people vulnerable to manipulation because it is easier to spin their fears into greater and greater threats. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 it's a truism of human experience that our, the, our fears are greater and greater to the degree we actually don't know or mm-hmm. have a uh, real knowledge of yeah. the object of our fear. Once mm-hmm. we actually, uh, come face to face with the person or the thing that it is that we fear, we often see the ways in which our fears have been exaggerated. Maybe there was a seed of reality that led mm-hmm. to the fear, but our, you know, our fears are often exaggerated by our imaginations. And so I think Trump sensed that and, uh, and long ago was realizing that he could mobilize this group and, and yeah. use it for political purposes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a sad thing as I think about it because so many people that I've talked to who I, I think are inside sort of that you know one sided echo chamber of things, um, many of them don't realize that that he, he was just found liable and uh, you know five million dollars for sexual harassment um, doesn't did what didn't know about that haven't heard about it you know because it's not 
on the radar or the indictments or things like that. Uh, many of them I found didn't know about like his, his, you know, just multiple affairs over the years and just different um, ways that he, Trump University, things that, you know, the fraud that was involved there, just bankruptcy after bankruptcy, one thing after another. All I ever knew was the um, the the man that was shown on The Apprentice, you know, or, or whatever it was that, whatever uh, spin was put on the news channel they were watching at the time. And so it's, it, your book points out so well the way that we can be living inside of our own bubble and yeah. the danger of that. And we see that danger culminating on January 6th, where people who I believe they really believe there was, you know, something that happened that we've we've got to get in there and 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 take this back. And it was all predicated on falsehoods, you know, everything that was going on. And so it, it can be frustrating. It can be heartbreaking. It can be very difficult through all of it. And uh, as we are, you know, unfortunately going to have to start uh, closing down this conversation a little bit, I, I know you've had a lot of time to reflect and I, and I encourage everybody to read your book and we're going to have links to it on our website. And hopefully if the technology works right, we'll be able to, uh, from the podcast, wherever you're listening, go to the notes, you can just click a button and, and go and, and, and get John's book that we're talking about today. But as you have had time to reflect on on so many things that we've talked about, I've heard you you say before about the importance of slowing down, and you talked about it some on this podcast, um, and not so much getting your news from cable, but actually taking time to read. Could you talk about it uh, in closing today in this conversation, why it's so important uh, to be readers? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's you're really sort of going to my sweet spot there. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Neil Postman, who wrote a book. Gosh, next year, it'll be uh, 40 years ago, right? Um, mm -hmm. Amusing Ourselves to Death, uh, yeah. which talks about the difference between a, uh, a word based culture in terms of communication and an image based culture. And mm -hmm. uh, if anybody wants to really, I think, at a fundamental level, understand the word, the difference between words and images and how it shapes the way we think and communicate, read that book. But mm -hmm. the basic point is that a typographic culture teaches us to think uh, more in terms of um, reason and the image based culture reaches us and trains us in our emotions more than reason. Um, and so I think that's reason number one to, to read rather than watch TV news. Uh, I, I think TV news is useful for a handful of things. You know, if there's something that's happened just now, like the nine 11 attacks, um, you know, TV news is pretty indispensable for, for helping us, see what's happening in real time um, on a big story like that. But day to day, I think it's a terrible, uh, you know, um, companion in helping us be, you know, knowledgeable and discerning about uh, what's going on in the world. And that's not just because TV can be ideologically, uh, you know, biased, uh, MSNBC one way, Fox News another way. A lot of people think CNN is biased one way. Chris Lick, the, the new president, is trying to bring it back more towards the center. But it's not just the ideology. It's just the the medium itself tends toward reductionism mm -hmm. and and tends toward sensationalism. And that's not true of everybody on TV. I, I have wonderful friends in television at some of the highest levels and i think the world of them and like for example john dickerson at cbs is doing a nightly newscast which if you really do want to watch tv news go watch his show every night like that's mm. he's doing good work and and, and i i can recommend that without uh without hesitation i also think jake tapper happens to be an outstanding tv journalist mm. but by and large i just think we're better off reading because it teaches us to think more critically uh, it gives us time to kind of assess what we're what we're encountering rather than just sort of TV. It just flies by us. Um, we can kind of look at something we don't understand or which we think, you know, that might be, I don't know if I agree with that or or maybe I agree with it too much. And we can go kind of double check it. Um, and, uh, and t you know, print-based news has all kinds of liabilities and, and weaknesses as well. But just as a a medium, like a, a way of receiving and, and giving information, I think it helps us be more deliberative and mm. contemplative in the way that we think. Yeah. 
Excellent. Well, these are great insights. And while we're talking about reading, uh, the, the book that we've been talking about today, uh, the book is called Testimony Inside the Evangelical Movement that Failed a Generation. It's from Brazos Press, and it was released this year in tw uh, 2023. Uh, John Lord, who has been my guest today, is the author of the book. And I'm so glad that you stopped by and we were able to talk. I, I feel like the time just flew and, and yeah. we lost track of it. Uh, so maybe we can do this again one of these days. But I, I just want to take the moment again to thank you for your good work. Uh, the book is excellent. I really enjoyed it. I had trouble putting it down. And even on my shifts at the hospital when I was overnight, I was when I wasn't receiving pages, I was reading the book and going through it and just finding like, wow, this feels like my story in so many ways. So thank you for your good work. And as I say to my guests uh, each week on this show, thank you for being one of the voices in my head this week. Well, Rick, thank you for those kind words and for reading the book and um, love to come back uh, in the future. And um, thank you for, for doing the work you're doing at that hospital. Uh, that is truly uh, blessed and graced uh, work that you're doing. And I know that it means a lot to the people that you're uh, serving. So thank you very much for doing that. Oh, thank you so much. All right. Well, you take care. Thank you. Thank you for joining me here this week on Voices in My Head. Music on the intro and outro of this show is from my single, As I Walk These Halls, which can be streamed on any streaming platform, including Spotify. I hope you'll visit me on my website at rickleejames.com where you can find out more about me, get my music on vinyl and CD, schedule me for a concert, a speaking engagement, a podcast, or even a book signing in your neighborhood. Also, it would mean a great deal to me if you could write a review of this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. The more positive reviews we receive, the more visible this podcast will be. And now, the benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.